turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 14, looking at verses 1 to 9. Let's, <clears throat> let's open in prayer. Father, <clears throat> we uh, lift up this time this morning, Lord, where we have uh, gathered in Your house, Lord, to worship You. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, that we in our own hearts have lifted You up on your throne this morning, that we have lifted you up in praise and worship and honor of who you are. Lord, that that would have an effect upon our hearts of how we receive your word this morning, that our hearts would be set right before you. And Lord, that you would speak into our hearts. Lord, we have much to learn, many lessons to learn as your followers, Lord, and, and Lord, would you teach us this morning. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I titled this morning's message, I actually had one title, The Anointing at Bethany, which is your traditional title for this particular section in, in Mark's Gospel. But then I thought the title I want to give it really is Giving Him Our All. That's the title for this morning's message. Last week, in uh, chapter 13, it's known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, If you weren't here, you can uh, get that message on the website. It's the one chapter in, in in the Gospel here, really, that is committed to Bible prophecy. It's speaking about future events, something that has yet not happened that is going to come to pass. Jesus left that Temple Mount on that day. He left with His disciples for the very last time before the cross. He gave His disciples that day as He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, as He was facing probably the Temple Mount, and looking at the temple and looking at all the beautiful buildings and and wall and everything that surrounded it, He gave His disciples the signs of the times and the end of the age. They asked Him those questions. They wanted to know when He was going to return, when He was going to establish Himself as Messiah. And that was the big question in every Jew's mind. When Messiah comes, what will that day look like? What will it be like when He returns? And Jesus gave them the signs of His second coming. We start this morning in chapter 14, where Jesus uh, now is coming down to two days before the cross. He spent that time on the, uh, on the Temple Mount each day. We're now two days before the cross. And Jesus is not through ministering. He never stopped ministering. Even as He hung on the cross to those that were there even standing there watching Him be crucified on the cross. He never stopped ministering. Here is Jesus now two days away from the cross. The Jews that were there in Jerusalem that had come for the annual feast, they were there preparing for their feast. And as they were preparing for the feast that they did every year, they were commanded to come to Jerusalem for these feasts, As they were preparing for their feast, Jesus was preparing for His death. He was preparing for the cross. And His disciples and those that were there, they didn't even have a clue. They didn't even know what was coming. But Jesus knew that it was marked out. He knew that His time was drawing near. This redemption for man's sin was just two days away. Jesus is now 32 and a half years old. He had uh, lived this whole life, and three and a half of those years were ministry, public ministry. 
And now he's two days away from the cross. Two days away from redemption for the sins of mankind. And he's preparing for his death, his burial, and his resurrection that was going to be the good news for this world. Look at your Bibles at uh, chapter 14, verse 1. It says, after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were told they sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Remember uh, a while back, uh, one of the titles to the message I, I gave was The Opposition Grows. The opposition was increasing as each day got closer to the cross. They were looking for a way that they might trap him. This wasn't the first they had tried before. And because of God's providence, it never happened and it would not happen until that time that God had already prescribed. It was already worked out in eternity for the day that Jesus Christ would go to that cross. But here are these religious leaders. These were the chief priests. This was the the main guy. The main religious leader of Israel at the time. The scribes also coming together and thinking how they might plot, how they might trick him, how they might have him put to death. After two days, we're told, it was going to be the Passover. And it also includes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this event called the Passover actually was included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but when it was ever spoken of as the Passover, every Jew knew that it included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would follow the day after Passover and would go for another seven days. Remember that these feasts, this was an event. This was, an, this was a celebration for the nation of Israel. This was a time, a yearly event that they would come to. Preparation for this event, preparation for Passover feast was something of a magnitude, a, a, a lot of work involved, a lot of preparation that led up to Passover. As a matter of fact, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and also ending with Pentecost 50 days later, after the resurrection, the Feast of Pentecost, all these feasts, preparations were being made a month in advance in the synagogues, the local synagogues that the Jews would attend. There was preparation going on in the people. They would get up and they would teach the people. They would remind the people about what Passover was about, what the the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about, what the Feast of Pentecost signified, what it was about. And so when they would come and the Jews would make their journey and they would journey to Jerusalem, they were coming and should have been coming prepared in their hearts for these feasts. Passover for the Jew. It was a time of expectation of the Messiah. Every Jew in their mind, they thought this could be the time that our Messiah would establish Himself in no better time than on Passover, but to establish Himself as Messiah. That there would be liberation for the nation of Israel. A time of celebration. And historically, every Jew was taught from Exodus chapter 12, to remember that God had sent that great deliverer Moses to deliver them from the bondage of the Egyptians, that they would be set free from the oppression that they were under. They knew their history. They knew what this meant. They also knew that it also was a reminder to them of that angel of death that would walk through Egypt 
And that every Jew was to, to take a lamb and was to slay that lamb and was to take the blood from that lamb. And with a hyssop, they would smear it on the lintel of the doorpost of their homes. And as that angel of death would walk through Egypt and observe the blood that was on the doorpost, that angel of death would bypass everyone in that home. This is why they gather together. It's why it was a command of the Lord for the Jews to once a year come and to celebrate this feast as a remembrance of what God had done. Isn't it interesting that God's timing? It's beautiful, as a matter of fact, God's timing of how these feasts line up with the events, not only in His life, but even in the things to come. These Israelites, they had this picture in their mind. This sacrifice. They would come and they would buy lambs either when they were there in Jerusalem or they would bring their sacrifice. And the priests that whole time of preparation would be busy preparing all the sacrifices that were going to be laid on that altar. This time of Passover, it was a time of great patriotic and messianic anticipation. They were just waiting and so if you could picture the Jews, even on that day as Jesus rode down into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, and all the palm branches they laid out, and they put that, that, their coats on the colt, and they, they rode Him down the, the side of the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem as King. I mean, this is what they were waiting for. This had just happened days before. Passover was one of those feasts that every male Jew, uh, every male Jew that was within 15 miles of Jerusalem was bound to come to this feast. But it wasn't just them. It was actually every Jew really that was in any of the regions round about. Many of them traveled great distance to come to this feast. The other two feasts, uh, one of them was that uh, the, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles that would come in the fall time for the Jews. These were the other ones that they were there for, but they would have ended this uh, time there in Jerusalem at Passover with the Feast of Pentecost. We uh, know that from reading what some of this looked like during that time in the preparation that they would actually take and they would take from a year-long uh, roads getting messed up, getting bumpy, they would actually take and they would smooth out the roads leading to Jerusalem. They would come through and make preparation even of the surface of the roads. They would mend or, 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 or fix broken bridges wherever those were. They would actually take the tombs. And I think I have a, a picture that we can put up here. A uh, picture of the tombs that are there today in Jerusalem. See how there are, uh, these tombs are above ground? That is up on the, on the Mount of Olives looking down towards the Temple Mount. The, this would have been a customary way that Jews would have buried their dead. They typically would bury them above ground. They would hew out a rock and have a, a, a burial site within a stone that they would hew out. And their whole families would maybe sometimes go into this one tomb. What they would do is they would put this whitewash on these tombs. And for this particular feast, what they would do is all of the tombs that line the roads. You see, every Jew, if they were going to place their tomb somewhere, it would have been on the side of the road leading down to the holy city of Jerusalem. It would have been an honor to have your, your tomb site right there on the pathway leading down to the holy city. But they would take these tombs and they would put whitewash on them, they would repaint them with whitewash, anticipating that there could be some travelers that would travel the roads and they might brush up against one of these tombs and become defiled. And so what they would do to try and safeguard that is they would brush them afresh with whitewash and put on there in case someone had rubbed up against 
one of these graves or these tombs. This was all in preparation for Passover. Jews that would travel uh, to this, they, they came from Galilee, many Jews. Remember, two years of Jesus' ministry was up in that upper region of Galilee. And that two years of ministry that Jesus was there, many Jews came to respect Jesus as a good teacher. They respected him as a prophet from God. And so there were many Jews that had come into Jerusalem for this particular feast of Pentecost with our Lord there that they would have looked at him and had great respect for Jesus Christ. We're also told in verse 1, though, that the chief priest and the scribes, they were seeking how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Plotting. These are, it always just strikes me when I think of somebody that is what we call a religious person, somebody that, that should have known are the ones that are plotting and are going to be the ones that are going to be instrumental in the death of our Lord. But what's also interesting is that, you know, if it wasn't them, it would have been us. You see, they were sinners that were in need of redemption. We are sinners likewise, in need of redemption. They obviously, though, being in the position they were in as religious leaders of Israel, they didn't have a fear of God. They, they weren't more fearful about seeking to try and trick and find some way to trick that they could have Jesus put to death. You would think that they would be more concerned about that, about murder, about having somebody committed to death. But... They were more afraid of the people. They were more afraid of the people than they were of God Himself. You see, they had no problem with plotting and trickery. It doesn't sound like something that a religious leader should be doing. Plotting and trickery to have Jesus arrested and murdered. But instead, they were concerned with the people what the people thought about Jesus, what the people, uh, th those that respected him. They could only think of the number of people that lined that road as he rode down that mountain, down into the city of Jerusalem as king of the Jews. And how they were singing, uh, raising their voices, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and, and in their mind, Jesus had their attention, many of them. They were concerned for the people that were raising their voices up to Jesus on that day. They were thinking, we can't do anything until after this feast. We can't have him put to death. This would not be the right time to do it because the people that had great respect for Jesus and some thought of him as a prophet, it would stir the people. Verse 2 says, but they said, not during the feast. This was part of their trickery. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Lest there be a riot amongst the people. Over 300 prophecies concerning the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were being fulfilled. Not just on this day, but they had, they had been fulfilled in the life of Christ. Over 300 of them. It was coming down to the very wire now. Coming down to the very moment that Jesus was going to go to that cross. These religious leaders who thought they were in control. Who thought that they could wait until after the feast. Because that would work better with their plotting. That's not how it was going to work out. They weren't going to be able to wait 
until after the feast. Though in their mind they thought that's the appropriate time to do it. So there's no riot here amongst the Jews. It tells me that everything about our Lord was always, he was always in complete control. He was in control of the moment. And though man tries to devise a plan, tries to trick, tries to to come up with a plot, it never changes God's plan. As a matter of fact, we read in Proverbs 21 verse 1, it says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. It's like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever He wishes. That's our Lord. He's in control. He was in control of the very moment that Judas Iscariot was going to give Him that kiss in that garden and have Him arrested. We also read in John 11.55, it tells us that these religious leaders originally they had plans to seize Jesus during the feast. Gives us a little bit more insight. That was their original intent, their original plan. And now here in Mark's Gospel, they're saying, but they plotted and they thought it best till they wait till after the feast because of a riot that could arise. We read in John 11.55 that these, uh, it says, And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus, and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast, they asked. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. They had intentions. They were just trying to work it out. They were trying to find the best and the appropriate time to have Jesus seized. Now, we come to another section in Mark's Gospel that kind of, it's kind of placed right here and and it's an appropriate placement. It's, It's a perfect placement for what's to come. It's the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. Jesus, remember, and His disciples every day when they left that temple mount, they would make that two mile journey up the side of the Mount of Olives, over the top, to that area called Bethany. And it's where they would lodge. Here's Jesus and His disciples once again leaving the Temple Mount and heading back to Bethany. Bethany and Bethphage were two cities that were located over the top of that mountain. These were cities that were full of people at this time. As a matter of fact, that, it, that during this time of Passover, they wouldn't even charge rent in the cities, overnight stay. They, they wouldn't even charge for it because this was a time for every Jew to be able to come, whether they could afford to have a place or not. Just open the place up, and these cities were full of people, estimated at over 3 million people that were in that city during Passover. Here's Jesus now with his disciples coming into Bethany again. And we read in verse 3, And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And then... She broke the flask and poured it on his head. I think we might have a, a picture of a, of a flask. That's not the actual flask, by the way. But it is a flask. And these flasks 
probably coming in various shapes, they were to hold this perfume, this oil, this nard, this spike nard that was very, very expensive. Here's this woman that is in the house of Simon the leper. And Jesus there is sitting with his disciples. He's actually reclining with his disciples. This was a customary way to sit. It wasn't sitting at a table as we normally do, but reclining on your left elbow and eating with your right hand and sitting on some pillows around these low uh, tables. There's Jesus with his disciples and probably some others sitting there in this house. We see that this woman, Mary, she comes and and she walks over with this alabaster flask with this costly perfume within it. John's account in John chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that This Mary was Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. This nard that was very valuable, this ointment that was in this alabaster flask, it it could have been an heirloom in the family. Traditionally, something like this would have been passed down because of its great value. It could have been an heirloom within her family. In other words, it held the best of all ointments and perfumes of the day. It was preserved in this alabaster flask. We're told, though, that when she walked over to Jesus, where He was reclining at this table, and in a sense, get this picture, as she walked up to Jesus reclining, she would have been standing over Him He would have been reclining on the floor. She would have been standing over him holding this alabaster flask. And then we're told that she breaks this flask. To break it means that you're breaking it to use it. It wasn't like just pulling the lid on it and taking a drop of it and putting it on the head of one of your guests, which that too was sometimes for important people a way of of really honoring the guests that would be at your table. To actually take a drop of it and to put a drop upon the head of one of your guests. But here's Mary taking this valuable ointment Taking this, taking this alabaster flask and actually probably breaking it at that long neck, that thin is breaking that flask. And, and keep in mind that she's doing this in front of all of the disciples in the Lord that are sitting there. She breaks the flask that contains this costly oil. And she begins to pour it on the head of the Lord. She didn't just dab it. She didn't just take a drop of it and put it on the Lord's head. She wasn't intentionally trying to hold some of it back because of how costly it was. That might have been the customary way to do that. But this was different for Mary. This was her Lord. This was her King. And so she breaks the bottle. She pours it out upon Jesus' head. And not just some of it, but all of it. Pours all of the oil on His head. And and it's said of that particular oil, that nard, that alabaster flask. It's said in, 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 in our story that it was, had a value of 300 denarii. That was a whole year's worth of wages for one man. Can you imagine? 
taken something of that value. You worked for a whole year to pay for something like this. And not only that, but it was probably even passed down in the family. John's Gospel in chapter 12, verse 3 says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet, and so she also actually anointed the feet of Jesus with it also, and wiped His feet with her hair. And we're told that the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Some of you are into these oils, I know. You buy these oils, and and one of these essential oils, spikenard, uh, it's very expensive, some of you might know. It it comes from a, a root, it's made into this oil, it's made into this perfume, and it's very strong in fragrance. And it's very expensive. And here she is pouring it on his head like you would a king. Here she is wiping his feet with her hair like you would preparing somebody for burial. I think Mary had some insight that the others didn't see. Here she is pouring it upon his head. I think that as she began to pour that oil out upon Jesus' head, I think that the first impulse, and I'm only guessing at this, but the first impulse were the people were probably that were sitting there at the table, they were flabbergasted. If you know what that mean word means, flabbergasted at what they were seeing. What is she doing? And then from that being flabbergasted, now she turns, or the other disciples, they turn and they, they become angry. They become annoyed. They're thinking, what a waste to take this valuable oil that could have been used for the poor and pouring it upon his head. I think that sometimes we do the same. I call it holding back. We hold back in ourselves from giving our all. You know, our time is valuable, isn't it? You know, it it takes a whole lot of work to keep up all the stuff that I got. You know, i got to provide for my family. I mean, hey, there's there's all kinds of things and reasons why we could say that we need to hold back. We don't have the time. And here's this woman amongst the other disciples that were there in that room. She's not even thinking about it. She's not holding back from her Lord. She's not giving Him seconds in that moment. How many times do we give God our seconds? We give Him our leftovers. We give Him the little bit of time that we have left in the day or the week. You see, it's costly. It'll cost us much to give our best And to give our best for many of us is too costly. We think we're doing Jesus a favor by just coming to church at times. I mean, isn't that all that He really wants? If I come to church and put money in the tithe box, surely that'll satisfy our Lord. Surely that's all that He wants from me. But sacrificial work, you know, that belongs to other people. You know, it belongs to the other people that have the time. I don't think our Lord saw it that way. 
Another thing that's interesting to me as I read this is that Jesus understood at that moment exactly what was happening. But the disciples, they didn't. They didn't know what was happening in the moment. See, Mary, she did this act of love by walking up to the Lord and breaking that flask and pouring it on His head. She did it without even saying a word. It's not like she gathered them together and said, hey, I've got this flask here and you guys know how expensive this oil is and I'm going to bust this thing open and I'm going to pour it on his head and you just watch it. Are you in agreement with me? She didn't even ask. Maybe she didn't want to ask. And she also didn't fall trapped to her own flesh. I think this is important. She didn't fall trapped to her own flesh that would want to make a spectacle of what she was about to do. You see, there's quite often when we do a work for the Lord, we're always hoping that some eye is on us. Somebody's seen what we just did. Something, somebody saw that act of kindness. And that's our flesh. Our flesh wants to, to glory in itself. But not Mary. She didn't want to make a spectacle of what she was doing. I think in the moment she was enthralled with her Lord, she knew what was coming. God help us that we would not fall trapped to our flesh. That we wouldn't seek glory more from men than we would from God Himself. You see, if you do acts of kindness, if you show forth the love of God and in your works and in your prayers, and it's to be seen by men, You have your reward. You already got it. But there will be no reward for that in eternity. That's going to be an eye-opening day, isn't it? For many of us. And I'll guarantee you there will be some of my works that are going to be burned. And I'll guarantee you that there's going to be some of your works that are going to be burned. Because you did it from a heart that wanted your reward now. Jesus warned His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, Jesus says to His disciples, I say to you, they have their reward. We need to make sure that when we do things, we're doing it to the glory of God, not to the glory of man. She didn't tell anyone At least in the narrative here, she didn't tell anyone what she was about to do. She didn't ask their opinion if they thought it was a wise thing for her to do. Nor did she say anything afterwards about what she had just done. She just simply did it. And that's the point. She just simply did it. And that is a servant of God. Somebody that doesn't need the praise and the accolades of man. They'll just simply do it. Whether somebody's there or not. They'll pick up the piece of trash out at the church when no one else is here at the church. They'll do something because as, as long as they're glorifying God, that's all they care. And every one of those acts, every one of those good works 
God says, I'll reward you for. I wrote, what you're willing to do in secret when no one else can see is a revealer of your heart's intent. It's a revealer. God help us to be people that will serve Him and to serve one another in sincere love. You see, the Bible speaks about sincere love. Opposite of sincere is hypocrisy. Doing these acts of kindness and love out of hypocrisy. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't play the part as a Christian. Don't do it for the benefit of others to see. Or even thinking that maybe God sees it. And God does see it. But what He sees more than the act that you do, He sees the intent of your heart. It goes on in verse 4. But there were some, and I, and I had to inject right here, I had to add, there always is. And there were some, and there always is, those who were indignant among themselves. And they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And look what it says. They criticized her sharply. Whoa. Criticized her for an act of love and kindness as she honored the Lord. In a sense, as she prepared him for burial. They were indignant. In other words, they were displeased with what she just did. They were grieved in their hearts. They were irritated with what she was doing. 300 denarii. A year's wages. Are you kidding me? I don't know if they said it that way, but what a waste. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 4, it says this, it adds this, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, was sitting there. Simon's son who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, Judas... Judas, you have such a heart towards the poor, don't you? You know, you really care about the poor. You're concerned that this was being wasted in this fashion. We know that's not the case. But we also know this, that if Judas was the one sitting there reclining with the rest of the Apostles or disciples, I should say. He may have been the one that started this off, but they quickly followed. He may have been the one who got it going by making the statement. And it also gives us a thought here as if the disciples were kind of sitting there talking amongst themselves. In Mark's Gospel. Because it it speaks of the disciples, plural. Maybe they were kind of whispering to each other. What a waste. Why'd she do that? It's interesting that the word translated waste in Mark 14.4 is translated perdition. In John 17, 12. And it applies to Judas Iscariot. Judas criticized Mary 
for wasting money. But Judas Iscariot, he wasted his entire life. That was a quote by Warren Worsby in regards to what it was taking place here now. What a waste. May we, as Christians, be like Mary, who thought nothing of giving the most valuable thing that she possessed, her alabaster flask, something that cost her much. No price paid was too large for her Lord. Wrap your head around. I I mean, that's what she was coming with. That kind of a heart. She was in a sense like that widow in chapter 12, looking back in Mark, who gave the two mites, the two copper coins that she dropped into that box up there on the Temple Mount. Jesus saw her that day. He saw her heart. He saw that she was giving from her poverty. She was giving from her whole livelihood, it says. Don't ever think that you can give too much to the Lord. Don't ever think that you're going to, you know, this is just too much. I mean, what does God really want from us? Jesus was honored and loved. He loved the widow. He loved the fact that she just had only two copper coins. But she was willing to honor her Lord. To give all that she had. Just like Mary with the alabaster flask. The valuable oil in it. To give it all. To give it when it hurts. To not give out of our abundance. To give our lives unto the Lord. Not just, you know, God, even when it hurts in my time, even when, you know, whatever, Lord, it's going to cost me something to follow you. Look at verse 6. Jesus comes to her defense. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Look how he's defending what she has done to the other disciples that were there. He says to them, For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not always have. I'm not always here. Don't you get it? Don't you see that what she has done, leave her alone. Matthew 26.10 says, but when Jesus was aware of it, interesting, when Jesus became aware of their conversation, when He was aware of what was going on in their heart. Remember the Lord can always see the heart. They could be sitting there at the table and not saying a word and He knows what's going on inside of our hearts. But when Jesus was aware of it, He said to them, why do you trouble the woman? maybe he picked up on them whispering to each other. Maybe they didn't have to say a thing. But he knew where these words were coming from. He knew that what they were saying to her was coming from a heart that wasn't right. It wasn't sold out like hers. These were the disciples that left their nets and their homes and they followed Jesus. But here they're struggling with this woman giving up this flask of valuable oil. 
thinking that it was a waste. And here's Jesus receiving it from this woman as a good work. You see, acceptable works to the Lord have to be works that come from a right heart. We're not gaining points with God when we do something for Him. We're simply doing it out of a response for what He has done for me, for you. Have you ever been convicted by another brother or sister's love for Jesus? That ever happened to you? You see them just serving the Lord out of a love, just doing it. And man, they're just, you just see it in them. They just have this joy. They're not there doing what they're doing because you know, this is what we do, you know what I mean? This is what Christians do. They, you know, we're, we're, this person or that person is there and it's obvious that they're doing it out of their love for their Lord. And I would have to say that I've been convicted by that at times. And I would have to say you probably have been too. I'm sure Jesus was defending her. The disciples were thinking, you know, that's messed up. What she just did there, they, why? When we could have used this for the poor, that comes from hypocrisy, especially in Judas. Because we're told in the text in in John's that he's the one that used to take from the money box. Oh, you think he was concerned for the poor? I don't think so. Mary had this perception that even the disciples didn't have at this point. Jesus was going to die. The day was drawing near. Her act of devotion and love for her Lord was in essence, it was like a gift that she was giving to her Lord for His burial. But they didn't get it. Verse 7, For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But for me, you do not, do not have always. She is done what she could. Do you see that in your Bible? You might want to underline that, verse 8. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Do you know that's the highest compliment that God could give to you or I? The highest compliment that He could actually give to this woman. She has done what she could. In other words, she has given all that she could. She gave her him her best. She didn't give the Lord her leftovers. She didn't give from her abundance. But she gave what she could. You see, the Lord doesn't ever ask you to do something that you can't do. To give something that you don't have. But what you do have, are you willing to give it? Without reservation. Without gripping onto it like, oh no, can't take this one away from me. You see, the Lord doesn't want us just to give of our substance, things. He wants us to give our lives like a living sacrifice unto Him. You see, that's giving it all. To give our life. Not just our things. That's what the the religious leaders did as they dropped the big bag into the the box on the temple mount. Looks good. Great show. Didn't hurt them. And then here comes the widow. The two copper coins. She gave it all. 
She gave of all of her livelihood. That's the heart, the willing heart that the Lord is looking for. Those individual Christians who are willing to give it all. To be complimented in that way. Look at verse 9. Jesus goes on and he finishes in this and saying, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Wow. That's quite the statement. What this woman has done. The Gospel message. What makes it powerful? What makes it powerful are believers that are in love with Jesus Christ. Everything within you. All that you are. Everything you believe is in the fact that you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. And is there anything that makes a Christian more powerful in their witness than to unleash a Christian out into this world with the good news of the Gospel with something that, from a heart that is in love with the Lord? Is there anything more powerful than that? Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this Gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be a memorial to her. She prepared me for my burial. She was going to be this testimony of a woman who gave it all. Sacrificed all that she had in essence. And it was for this gospel message that was going to break forth. Over the next few days, he was going to be crucified. He was going to raise from the dead. Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were going to get saved on that day. The gospel was going to go forth by Peter now. It was going to begin to change lives. And here's this woman... In essence, preparing the Lord. Preparing Him for the cross. Preparing Him for the tomb. That He was going to raise from the dead and that Gospel was going to go out in power. That's all we need. If you want to be effective, a powerful witness for Jesus Christ, then just allow God to have His way in your heart that you might fall more and more in love with Him each and every day where you cannot help but open your mouth and tell somebody the glorious works and good news of what Jesus Christ can do for them. And I'll tell you what, you'll become a memorial. <laughs> People look at your life and go, wow, that's powerful. I want some of that. It's not enough in these days that we're living as Christians right now. It's not enough just to say that I'm a good church attender. That doesn't do it. What we're called to be is to be a light and a witness and a testimony of who Jesus Christ is. And God, there's a lot you need to break down in me that I might become that man or that woman. I think we're all here this morning hearing this testimony of Mary. And what God would want to do in us is that He would want to say, I want, I want your heart. I want it like Mary. I want this in you. That's the kind of heart I want in all of you. He wanted it in His, his disciples. Right then, He wanted it. They didn't get it. And we often don't get it either. But God, would You help us that we would be those Marys, that we would be willing to sacrificially give all that we can, all that we have, everything, Lord, 
for your glory, for your kingdom. Father, I thank you uh, for this testimony. It's what it is. A testimony of, of a heart that is fully engaged, fully in love with you. Willing to give it all up. Doesn't need anything in return. And maybe even if Mary, maybe if she would have questioned when they began to say, what a waste. Maybe she would have thought in her own heart, did I really waste something? But I believe, Lord, that in her heart she knew that what she had given was what she was compelled to do for, out of her love for You. And Lord, I think she walked away from that, Lord, not even thinking about the loss. Not even questioning. Not even caring about the 300 denarii. It didn't matter in comparison to what she had just used. There would have been no better place, Lord, that I could pour this oil but upon my Lord's head. And we thank You, Lord, for this testimony. Lord, may it be said of us. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.